One, two, ten. Welcome to the Claim the Throne Blodgecast, coming on you with insights into what it's really like to be in a do-it-yourself metal band in 2014. Is it? And we're black, and today we're here with a music and business extraordinaire, Rob Nassif. Rob's done huge things with his band, Gyroscope, great things for Perth Music, with the Hen House Rehearsal Studios. How are you doing today, Rob? Cabba, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, mate. Man, anytime. Thanks for being with us. And how are you today, Ash? I'm very good. Good to hear, good to hear. Ash Large, the strongest name in uh, metal and rock and roll across Australia. Ash Large, boom. Full on 22 biceps and um, looking stunning in jeans and a, and a singlet. Anyway, yeah, Rob, if you can just start off perhaps um, by giving us a bit more details about yourself. So how you got into the music scene and what you're up to these days, that would be awesome. Yeah, sure, Cabba. Um, started in my band Gyroscope back in... 96 when I was 15 years old um, with Zoran, the lead guitarist. Uh, a couple years later, we picked up another member and another member. And by sort of 98, our final year of high school, we're gigging around Perth as much as we could. Had, uh, you know, various one of one of our mums or dads coming to shows to uh, to get us in because we're all underage. But um, <laughs> yeah, it took it pretty seriously from a, a young age trying to pursue the musical dream. And yeah, just gigged around Perth really from about 96 was our first sort of show through to 2002 was the first time we made it over east so it, it took us a while before we even sort of got over east and luckily enough ended up signing a record deal with festival mushroom records at the time that would have been 2003 um, and then that's really when the band sort of started we all sort of quit our jobs and uni and study and went on the dole for the next two years and did music full time and really pursued it and had a bit of support from the label and released our debut album sort of 2004 and then subsequent albums in 2005, 2008 and our last album was 2010 and then part of that whole musical journey I ended up buying R&R Rehearsal Studios in Osborne Park here in Perth, Western Australia which I fixed up and renamed the Hen House Rehearsal Studios and that's got me in contact with lovely gentlemen like yourself and your band. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a brief sort of summary, I guess. Good story, man. And, yeah, sounds, sounds like it's been a wild ride. And yeah, you've done what you've had to do to, to get to where you are. So so the first thing uh, we noticed about the Hen House, of course, is cool vibe, personalised artwork, basketball hoops, arcade games, uh, band rehearsal tally lists. Yep. Uh, of course, working PAs and aircons, which are pretty important. Um, and also just the general feeling of cleanliness and care. And I guess when you're, when you're spending 70 bucks on a rehearsal, yeah. you want all those things. They should almost be necessary, but you've gone that extra step with all the added things that um, yeah. we can't see on this podcast, but beautiful artwork behind us. Yeah, was it a conscious decision from the start or a strategy to do that? Or uh, what was the approach in setting up the hen house? Yeah, it really was. Um, I guess having, you know, rehearsed at, the Hen House formerly was called R&R Rehearsal Studios. We always had a permanent room. So when we were writing albums, we were typically spending four or five days a week down at the studio. And it's like you say, little things like unclean toilets and, you know, uh, just a bad vibes, you know, like having black ceilings, for instance, over time, especially when you're writing an album over the course of four or five months coming into that space every day, it really started wearing me down personally. And, uh, didn't stop us writing another four albums in those conditions, but I always thought, you know, it's a shame because, you know, like when you're making music, no matter what genre, you're trying to access a part of yourself that's creative and you're trying to be, you know, it's it's a form of creativity and that can be hard at the best of times. So if you can do little things like having dimmer lights, so, you know, in our rehearsal space back in the day, we would bring in dimmable lamps to try get the vibe because it was all fluoros. Mm -hmm. So little things like putting in um, all warm lighting, getting rid of all the fluoros, not just in the rooms, but the hangout areas. It's all those little one percenters that I just ultimately hope will allow bands to be a little bit more creative, a bit more comfortable and enjoy themselves when they're making music. Awesome. Love to hear that for sure. Um, and, and so I guess that's a bit of maybe what prompted you to start expanding from there and, and building you know, something yourself. Yeah, I guess in regards to being prompted to, to enter the, the market with a rehearsal studio, um, had you run a business before or I mean, was your decision aimed at keeping you in touch with the music industry and, and what's going on out there as well? Yeah, you know, it was a couple of things, I guess. Um, as a result of pursuing gyroscope from sort of such a young age, I had no, and sort of heading towards 30 years old, I bought uh, um, the, or started the hen house when I was 29. So from really from a young age, finishing high school to 29, I hadn't actually worked 
in any particular field or job because, you know, like I say, we'd spent a few years on the dole, then we'd spent a few years living off publishing, and then finally a few years living off band salary. And at the age of 29, my resume looked like uh, <laughs> it was pretty lean. Like my resume. Yeah, yeah, like a lot of, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it was a necessity thing because I thought, you know, the one job that I that was a constant was I had been working at R&R Rehearsal Studios for the previous owner, Big Mac. So Yeah. Yeah. So as a result of doing that, I guess my previous seven years of work it was R&R Rehearsal Studio. So I guess I understood it. And yeah, it's for me, it was, I just always had all these ideas. So it was nice to be able to implement them and I guess test them over time and get feedback from the bands. And that's allowed me to build a much better second one and will, you know, hopefully allow me to build, again, a much better third one. Killer, killer. And, uh, yeah, you mentioned you have actually built a second one um, across the road. That's the one we're sitting in now. Obviously, you must have been booked to the gills in number one. Has taking on a second studio been worth the extra effort and everything and the investment that you put into it? Yeah, I, I went pretty large, pardon the pun, Ash, with, uh, <laughs> with, with this one. I spent way more money than really, I guess, anyone else in their right mind would. So I've learned a lot of things from that. But yeah, I think the demand's sort of been there. Having said that now, the landscape's getting more competitive. But yeah, it's definitely been great. And more than anything, like the actual, the biggest benefit was the learning curve. It's one thing buying an existing rehearsal studio and fixing it up. It's a, just a whole different ball game when you really learn about the intricacies of sound. And even though it's a rehearsal studio, you know, bands aren't expecting it to be of a recording studio quality. You know, what we learned very early on was we had to still treat the rooms and we added first one bass trap and then a second bass trap and then a third bass trap and different types of material in the bass traps <laughs> and even you know the material we used on the walls you won't find this any other rehearsal studio because it costs an absolute crap load per square meter mm. but it's fantastic because it has such a nice finish mm. um and it, it takes up a lot of the top end so off your cymbals and stuff so it's all these little things that i learned and i think so i guess getting back to your question the biggest benefit financially it's been good i guess maybe not as good as it could have been but more than anything i've learned an awful lot which will, will help going forward and building the next couple awesome and was it a i guess it's obviously a massive job um but also a lot of fun i'm sure and like you said you've learned heaps of things that you would never probably have learned otherwise but i guess in regards to um what else might have been involved like council approvals or licenses business plans and marketing and all sorts of things like that was all of that involved and just yeah, a massive learning curve as well i guess massive gigantic yeah the only bit of advice i've got there is you really need to and it's hard to do because you don't want to have to spend that money up front but hire professional people to deal with that mm -hmm. um which was a huge help for me because it allowed me to just focus on the finer details like materials and all the rest of it but having a professional team to get all of that stuff across the line was really great and yeah like i say the it was just a fun experience because the chap that helped me was zoran trivik so the guy that i started gyroscope with in 96 who's now a chippy and works for a building company he was the foreman of the job so you know that's cool. The, my buddy that we made all this music together and had this incredible journey with Gyroscope was in here being my right-hand man leading the way to build this thing. So that was cool as well. Yeah, it's cool. Drawing on the scene. When Cabra and I first started out in bands, I'm sure it was exactly the same with you. As you've mentioned, you know, the rehearsal room in general, no matter where you jammed, was just a place of, it was like a beehive of activity. And you'd go down there not only to just jam, but to hang out and meet people, network, um, promote your band with posters on the walls. Yep. And just even as a musician, I mean... I'm largely a member of Claim of Throne because um, we used to jam together. Yeah. You know, when I was in other bands and Cabba saw what I could do. Yeah. I liked what they did. And, you know, it's kind of that place to meet in between the gigs of the weekend. Absolutely, yeah. So now that people are starting to push into their homes, maybe not jamming so much because they've got studio gear. It's true, They yeah. can demo at home. It seems like there's a great culture happening here. And, I mean, what do you think the state of the actual rehearsal culture is these days? Yeah, it can still be a lot better. And I really want to start focusing more on that community aspect. You know, we have the Hen House Wall of Fame here with 50 rehearsals, 100, 150, 200. And then albums that were written at the Hen House needs to go up there as well. And um, as well as international and national bands. And it's just a spot where young bands or all bands can come through and just see, you know, they see that Carnival's rehearsed here 200 plus times and they see that Sound Awake was written here. And it, it's kind of like... It also just makes it real that there's bands that have come here before you doing exactly what you're doing, mm. going into that room, there's four walls, there's a PA system, and they're writing songs that they never existed 
before that jam started. And that one song, in many cases, can be the song that propels your band to, firstly, national touring, international touring. And I guess that's the thing, like, I've, you know, always tried to get across with the bands is, you know, with Gyroscope, when we started the band, we started and learnt our instruments as we went along. We learnt how to songwrite as we went along. And it was just really sheer hard work, determination over a very long period of time that got us there. And so the message I'm always trying to reinforce with the young bands is, and by having like the the wall of fame is that, you know, at the end of the day, if you look at all the bands that have done 200 plus rehearsals here, all of them are doing pretty good things as far as touring or within their scene. So Mm. it's about trying to foster that sense of belief because music's just hard enough as it is. There's not really many people, unless you're a musician or in a band that you can talk to about the struggles or things like this now is so great for bands because they have some other resource they can listen to and get ideas from. So in a sense, a rehearsal studio is like a real world version where you can chat to bands and learn about the industry. Totally, man. No, that's awesome. And, and you did mention a couple of um, high profile bands that you've seen jamming here as well. We must also have other bands that sort of may become stagnant or, or drop off um, you know, the, the scene as well. Would you have any sort of observations as to the differences between some bands that have maybe healthy re- rehearsal habits and bands that maybe not so healthy habits and, and what separates them from the pack? That's a great question. Bands that are in here week in, week out, that already just shows they've got a, a professional sense, I guess a professionalism about their band because they understand the importance of rehearsing mm-hmm. the motto i tell bands and i really believe this is is one gig is worth 10 rehearsals so my whole mentality is bands need to be playing lots of gigs more gigs more gigs more gigs even though it's perth and there's a tendency to not want to overplay in perth i actually go the other way and i say i want you to overplay in perth play as much as you can overplay it to death but get good at your craft get amazing um and if you're playing all those gigs sure you're going to be rehearsing week in week out um I was chatting to a friend of mine who was in a band in the early 2000s we used to play with a lot called Time's Up and we were having a chat and we were listening to his old EP and I was like, mate, this, this EP is pretty damn good. I forgot how good this was. But I remember at the time, I mean, these guys, along with Gyroscope, along with a bunch of other bands at the time, we all rehearsed twice a week without fail. It was like, we all did like a Tuesday, Wednesday down here at R&R. You know, I don't see as much of that anymore. And I guess it depends how serious you want to take your music because not everyone's in it to try and become a, a national touring act or make a living from music. But I think um, the bands that seem to go places are the ones that are constantly rehearsing, number one. But number two, constantly playing shows and trying to develop their craft and get more confident on stage and all the rest of it. Well, yeah, that's a pretty top piece of advice and um, a nice little segue there to the articles you've written. Um, I've read that. I read their bludge. I read their bludge. In one of your articles, you did write that. um, Yep one gig is worth 10 jams and it's totally true we're a band that try and pull back a little bit from playing locally a lot because we feel we do saturate the market a little bit of the time but then we invariably find ourselves playing more and more gigs because we just end up saying yes to them and yeah we think oh well this this gig might be a good warm-up for this yeah exactly it'll force us to jam here and there and blah 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 and what what's funny that i've noticed is that we haven't been jamming as regularly Mm -hmm. over the last couple of years with everyone's life getting a little bit busier and everyone's finishing their uni degrees and getting real jobs so it's a bit harder but um you know when i think about back to my early bands and the old one take jakes in the studio and you know it all just used to just happen so quickly whereas now you know we really need to do some serious work on our own and then in the studio to get anywhere because we don't jam you know that regular tuesday wednesday which was our old nights as well yeah yeah you can really see a shift in the tide it's furthering your band advice you've got a blog on thehenhouse.com.au it's like really good always just about trying to offer advice because i always have these chats with the bands anyway when i'm hanging out here at the studio and you know bands are asking advice and just the thought has been to really start getting some of those points down and getting it out like say henhouse.com.au and um, just getting it out there as much as possible and it's great that you guys are reading it and other folks it it encourages me to write more because i hate the actual process of writing them it's hell (laughs) um but then the thought of you know hearing my voice recorded every week is even more (laughs) off-putting (laughs) <laughs> We're supposed to be trying to do both, but so far I think no articles this year. But you guys have been great with your consistency, so props to that because the Blodgecast has been, you know, every week something's <laughs> coming out. So well done, fellas. Thank you. Doing our best. Um, <laughs> what I was going to ask, because you did mention that, um, you know, you, you are in all the time in the studio and talking to bands and that sort of prompted you to start writing the articles. What are some of the most common questions that young bands are asking? Like, do, are they asking you for advice on getting gigs or, you know, are, yeah. are they, you know, on the right track or not? And Yeah, I mean, gigs is a big one. 
one. Um, a lot of bands will come in here from the bedroom and start getting their set up and they'll get it to a point where they're ready to start playing shows. And, you know, I guess my, my number one point of advice there is, and what we learned early on was it was very hard for us to get gigs in the beginning. But then when we made friends with, you know, sort of three, four, five bands that were gigging regularly, well, then the gigs flowed quite naturally. So it comes back to that contacts thing and knowing people and, and it's not, it's not like a sucking up thing, like you need to know this person to get gigs or all the rest of it. It's just introducing yourself, being a good dude, being up for a chat. And uh, and that's what, I guess that's like getting back to the rehearsal studio thing and the community thing. It's like we've got basketball rings down here. We like bands shooting hoops, maybe shooting hoops with each other, meeting each other. And then I try to be a bit of a conduit to that as well, you know. Hey, Ash come meet uh sarah from boys 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 <laughs> it's uh it's really a, two very different stylistic bands but at the end of the day everyone here are musicians and they've all got very similar struggles as far as quite often working part-time jobs and pursuing music so there's a lot in common here irrespective of genre so it can just be a thing of trying to get to know people and making contacts and stuff like that so yeah getting back to your original question cover usually about shows and then often about management how they should go about that promotion marketing getting a record deal still comes up surprisingly good stuff man um yeah i mean you're certainly more than qualified to be giving advice to these bands you've been through the traps um and that does sort of lead us on to perhaps we'll just uh, bug you a bit about gyroscope um i think you've heard of gyroscope before you would have heard of the band gyroscope from perth australia yeah you have had uh, i believe number one aria single yeah number one album it was actually album far yeah. out um all sorts of aria award nominations triple j hottest 100 appearances whammy awards all sorts of yeah, awesome yeah. stuff the list goes on um what do you attribute um the success of, of gyroscope to mainly i mean you have said you guys were you know hard working and you just you need know, to stick at it and be persistent but there anything in particular that sort of you think is has really helped you guys take off and do what you've done really looking back on it i think more than anything was having four equally dedicated members was really the, the key to it because i guess the one big thing that i see a lot of is um is bands breaking up and bands where there's like one or two members that aren't as dedicated as another member and it, it really affects the it really affects the dynamic of the band moving forward and i think with gyroscope we always had four people that were each pushing each other to always be jamming always be playing shows always be getting better at your instruments always be sticking posters up on the street on the way to 78s you know it was a real collective effort with gyroscope in getting where we got so i think that more than anything is probably the key thing and then obviously the hard work and then luck you know we we uh, we definitely had luck i mean i think um you know getting that number one album just a, an absolute piece of luck that we had along the way with at the third record going to number one was channel 10 picked up the song Snakeskin that had got some really great mm -hmm. airplay on Triple J, but then they made it their their song for the AFL commercial. And so That's right. Breed Obsession was coming out, I think it was like oh, it was like April eighth or something like that, or May eighth. The ads for the footy kicked in, you know, March thirtieth or something like that. And the first day it kicked in was when the Grand Prix was on, the Australian Grand Prix. And they were showing the, the one-minute version of that ad all day long whilst everyone was watching the Grand Prix. And it had, you know, gyroscope, snakeskin. And so the exposure on a national level was priceless. And then a week later, the album came out and then it went to number one. And that was off the back of having done the big day out and having the success with snakeskin at Triple J. So, you know, you get lucky when you're out there working really hard. Opportunities come your way when you're, when you're always out there. So... You need to be ready to snap up that opportunity as well, which you guys were. You yeah. Know, when things, you know, you, you do get lucky, but you have to make the most of it. And yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah, I remember that time period quite well because every time a Perth band, especially in the last decade, hell of a lot of Perth bands have... They used to think something was in the water over here, yeah, you know. I know, and, there was um, quite a run, wasn't there? Yeah, it's quite amazing. And I remember being at work and um, Fast Girl used to come on all the time at Triple J at work. So when those AFL ads started, I was like, hang on a minute, what's happening here? Yeah. Like, you guys really busted through and, you know, you really started establishing yourselves as a, a big domestic headlining band and thought, well, there you go. There's yeah. another one from Perth. Yeah. Ready to go. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing, mate. It was a great, great like, the way that, you know, the whole gyroscope, you know, with all of our four albums, each one just got a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was a bit of a steeper curve on the third one, but the band's growth over the years has just been really fulfilling, I guess, rather than sort of shooting straight up. And then quite often, you know, second album's a bit of a dud and third album, the band's broken up. So yeah, it's been an awesome ride. 
And uh, I, yeah, I just still can't believe it sometimes when I think about what we've ended up accomplishing as a band and doing. Feel very fortunate and lucky, hey. And also on our previous podcast with Rodney Holder from Alchemist, he said this exact same thing about his band, where um, it was just because every member was dedicated as the other member. Yes. And so they like to think that their songwriting was always improving. Yep. And yeah, exactly as you say, each album got better. Yeah. They, the band stayed strong, and he attributed that almost solely to the success of the band. Yeah, I mean, if you if you're in a band, and you know, it's going to be a lot of people in bands listening to this, and you've got a dud member. He's making excuses to not jam on Tuesday. He can't play the gig on the Sunday because of whatever reason. Get rid of him. And I know it sounds brutal. He might have been your buddy for the last five years and he might hate you and could be the end of the friendship. But people that aren't pulling their weight in bands just drag the band back. And you can spend years pursuing your band, putting 100% in, and this person's only putting 70%, 60%, even 80% is not good enough. And it will collectively slow the band down. So, again, it's, it also depends on how serious you are about your music, you know. If you're playing in a band for fun, then it it's probably wouldn't be an issue. But getting the right people is just critical, I reckon. Definitely. Thanks for the beer, Cabba. Yeah, <laughs> unlimited. Fantastic. Yeah, and so Gyroscope has been your primary band since uh, you are in high school. Um, have you had other projects along the way, or are there, is there any other musical territories you'd like to see yourself get into? Yeah, um, you know... I think, I guess another one of those things with gyroscope, we're sounding kind of militant now that I talk about it, but <laughs> we, uh, we had a policy of like no side projects and <laughs> we only do gyroscope because there's always more that we could be doing. Yeah. Um, but so I haven't, I've only ever played in gyroscope. I've been lucky enough to fill in a couple of times on tours, mm-hmm. a couple of bands that have had a member go down, well, a drumming member go down, I was able to fill in. But yeah, now with the band sort of there's couple of the boys have got kids and um with the band sort of being on the back burner a bit i'm sort of and especially being down here at the studio i i do want to start playing with different musicians and and even different styles you know trying a few different things i don't think i'm quite up to metal standards and double kicks or anything ash but uh just trying a few different things and getting into it so we'll see with gyroscope as well i guess you guys did um smash the international market a little bit as well how, how was that for you guys and what did you get up to over the seas yeah it was a funny one with the international we we did start pursuing it, like around our first album and even second album, we did South by Southwest Festival a couple of times in Austin, which was absolutely fantastic. I'd highly recommend it. Played, We got flown over to play a showcase for Warner, uh, Warner Brothers Records in New York and met Seymour Stein, the guy that signed Ramones and Madonna and all the rest of it. And we, we got close on a few occasions, but what we found was after touring the second record, we had toured Australia so hard just trying to build our profile in Australia this was before the third album did what it did and we were spending more and more money trying to pursue the international dream when the domestic dream hadn't really fulfilled itself and we were just getting to a point where we're starting to get a bit burnt out from touring and so we kind of made a bit of an executive decision around the third record I guess it would have been like 26 27 to sort of try to really lock down Australia because we had all sort of got tired of living off 250 bucks a week as well and yeah. and so yeah we we stopped spending money pursuing the international thing we still managed to do some great we toured South Africa and New Zealand played shows in the UK um where we were really lucky with our band was we recorded our second album in LA our third album in Liverpool and London and our fourth record in Wales so we got two months stints to be overseas and get that sort of international fix but we didn't pursue the overseas thing as hard as many bands do these days for better or worse it might have been a great move but at the end of the day it allowed us to spend a bit more time with our families as well as you know get to a point where we could earn a, a full-time salary doing the band which ultimately allowed me to finally buy R&R studios and do something different so I was lucky. And I think a lot of people don't really get that. You don't have to be an international super band from Australia. Just, you know, like, what is it, the Vines or the Jet or whatever. They just took off and that was it. Um, and they rarely played shows in Australia. But that's not to say they did really well financially or anything good came of it. it just mean they work their asses off trying to just yeah. break the market. Yeah, and, and it's expensive, hey? I mean, yeah. it's been good the last few years with the Aussie dollar being what it is, but if we're going back to sort of 2004, 5, 6, 7, when we were looking at and, and were doing some of these trips, the Aussie dollar to the US was like one Aussie dollar was like 65 cents US, mm. whereas ne- for a while there it was one-to-one. So even just that point of view, and friends' bands like the Butterfly Effect went and spent, you know, a month, six weeks doing Germany. They spent so They lost so much money that they could have all put deposits down on houses so it's a tough one and bands pursue it and they do it and some have incredible success and they carve out a market you know parkway drive is a great example 
I sit down with their manager, Graham Nixon, all the time whenever we are in the same town. And, you know, they invested a lot of money overseas, but they're selling out shows in Istanbul of 1,500 people. They're selling out places in Russia, Indonesia, United Arab Emirates. It's it's, it's actually yeah. crazy. Kenya. Kenya, why not? Swaziland. <laughs> and um, it's... but. So it is. It can be done, and I mean, Parkway Drive is an example of a band that's not, obviously not getting radio play to a great degree, um, but they've been able to do well and and make money and have a six a living and and do what they love. So it can be done. Mm. Yeah, no, it's funny. Parkway Drive always get mentioned on well a good few interviews that we've done as well. They're always one of those bands that people recognise as hard workers and have, have really dominated, you know, the whole worldwide scene. So yeah, props to them for sure as well. Um, you did mention a bit of um, about some international recording you guys did as well. Um, I believe the Cohesion album was recorded at Rockfield with yeah. Gil Norton. Um, yeah. What prompted you guys to, to do that and, and to go abroad as well and how was it? Yeah, so with, uh, yeah, the last record was pretty crazy. So Gil Norton had always been on our radar as a, a favourite producer for us. Obviously, his work with the Pixies, first of all, did the three best Pixies albums, in our opinions, <laughs> including Doolittle. And uh, and then his work with Foo Fighters, um, Colour and the Shape, was a hugely influential album for the four little groms in Gyro back in the day. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, we just loved his production. We always thought he'd be great. So when we sent him the demos and he got back to us and said, yep, he's up for it. He loves it. We said, okay, where, when? And he was the one that picked Rockfield Studios, which is an amazing studios. It's a it's a converted farmhouse in Wales that was converted in, I think, 1968 by um, the Ward brothers. And Kingsley Ward still owns it, still lives there with his wife, still does all the farming. But you see, you're surrounded by all these farms and you live at the recording studio. There's full catering so there's a lovely lady that cooks you breakfast, lunch, dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same studio where Queen wrote Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. Um, Oasis did uh, What's the Story, Morning Glory. Kasabian's done an album. Coldplay, Sepultura did Chaos AD there. Really? Yeah. And so I made sure uh, I found out which room Igor had <laughs> and they, they chucked us in there. They, it was, there was just little things like that. You know, They put all the drummers in the same room. So Roger Taylor, his room, Igor, all the drummers always stayed in the one same room. And it's it's just little cool things like that. You think, man, I'm sleeping in the bed where, you know, Queen's drummer, Sepultura's drummer have stayed in the same room. It's over the years and the history and it, it feeds into this sense of purpose that you're there. So great experience and working with a great producer. And we were there for eight weeks, I think. And yeah, couldn't be happier, really. It was uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, with the turning tides in the you know the recording industry and with the money's not there and advances and all these kind of things, um, you know, is there something to be said? Uh, you know, we push DIY stuff. We we did our last album DIY and we've been pushing there, of course, tracking in these very rooms. And um, you know, there is still this thing where I still want to go to a studio and just want to do that and just have the time and breathe and be somewhere else. You know, and I mean. What have you got to say about that? If you were to do a new album these days, how yeah. would you approach that? Great question. To be honest, I think if I was a new band starting out, I think it's not really feasible to go spend that sort of money. You know, mm. we were in a unique situation where all four of our albums came out on major labels. First, it was Festival Mushroom, which then got out by bought out by Warner's, and then we f- we actually finished our record deal with our three albums, and then we signed a new record deal with Universal. So we always had funding to do albums and. By the, the time we got to our fourth album, I mean, we were so far in the hole with money we owed the, the labels that we were never, it just, the, the idea of spending, you know, another 150 grand on an album, it just didn't bother us because it, A, we weren't fronting it. We knew it was only coming out of CD sales, wasn't coming out of live shows or merchandise. Um, so we really were happy to do it, but that wouldn't be my recommendation for most bands. I think... In this day and age, even compared to 10 years ago, even compared to 2004, the quality of music you can get for so much less money, it's just incredible, you know? I mean, I listen listen to the Claim the Throne record and knowing that some of the drums was done here, and I mean, it sounds phenomenal, blows my mind. And knowing that you guys recorded huge chunks of it with... uh, you know, Al, it's uh, it's incredible and it shows you what you can get these days. Whereas 10 years ago, you couldn't really get that. You had to spend a bit more money 10 years ago. And 15 and 20 years ago, you had to spend more money again. But we've sort of come to that point now with computing power and Pro Tools and, and all the rest of it where it sounds pretty damn awesome. Mm, that's so, the, the very same thing we're recording this podcast yeah. with too. Yeah. <laughs> so look, I mean, if you ever find yourself in that situation where you can do it, um, and, it and it's very rare because... Labels aren't spending that money anymore. 
and getting signed is hard enough and you know the the yeah we were just very lucky i think wait go rob that's uh good to hear fucking <laughs> <laughs> <a> good story <laughs> um we'll move on a bit um just i'll just keep going you did mention before about the whole Channel 10 thing, which was a bit of a high point for you guys. Um, but you do seem like a fairly savvy marketing guru um, with both Gyroscope and the Hen House. Um, what sort of tactics and things have you found to work out for you guys in the past? Um, I guess with Gyroscope, uh, I mean, you know, physical things, online things, what do you think are, are best, um, you know, most most productive things and, and why bands should be thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I think your band should not necessarily stand for something. It's not like, that's that almost sounds like a political statement because... There's nothing like that in Gyroscope, but, you know, we always, for instance, we took care of all our merchandise, um, not the management. Gyroscope always owned the, you know, the, the, the merchandise company, especially in the early years, um, and we always sourced the designs, sourced what we wanted to get made, and it was all part of that image and branding behind the band, and that was also understanding the people that were coming to our shows, and, yeah, so I think just sort of understanding who you are as a band, um, and then creating merch, tailoring shows, playing venues even, that suit the people that love your music, you know. Obviously, trying to be active on social media these days is really important. Um, so, yeah, it's just, I guess, you know, experimenting, trying things. And also, just as always, doing the nitty-gritty stuff, putting posters up. You know, if you're a grassroots band, you should be out there putting the posters up every week, doing little things like getting stickers made and sticking them all over the place. Except the hen house, don't do that. <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> Unless they're hen house stickers. Yeah, that's true, which we give away here, you know. And the shirts and the vending machines, love that. Totally, yeah. So I guess from the Hen House perspective, it's always, we're trying to create a community here, the Hen House. We're trying to always, it's, I like people to think it's a brand they can, you know, get advice from, trust. You know, there's a level of consistency we always try to have here. You know, whenever you walk into a room at the Hen House, every lead is always coiled in a particular way. We try to have the mics, leads us hands at the same height. It's really little Love things it, that people probably might not even notice. But it's just there's a level of consistency. So every room kind of looks the same with a different mural. So that's if we can't put you in your normal room and we put you in a different one, it still feels the same. So it's all those yeah, little it's things. It's like a hotel or something, you know? They've, yeah, they've got the yeah, same way they turn your, the beds down. Or yeah, whatever. well, it's like the – it's the for me, it's like a, the McDonald's analogy of, you know, if I go get a cheeseburger in uh, Girawine, it'll taste the same as one that I get in Beijing, China, <laughs> you know? So There's a Macca's like in Girawine? There might not be, but <laughs> there'll be one close yeah. to it, that's for sure. Will there be one there soon? Yeah. That's for sure. Well, man, that's, yeah, phenomenal advice. Love it. Um, and, yeah, really know your, your target market as well and, you know, aim aim to please people. Um, And we did touch on the internet as well, Um, but how do you see it as a, a platform these days in regards to marketing? Um, I mean, obviously the emergence of social media has completely changed the game plan for musicians. Um, do you think it's essential for bands to be taking advantage of that um, or do they need a healthy balance of, um, you know, online as well as traditional sort of methods as well? Yeah, the healthy balance definitely um, <clears throat> trying to run your whole entire existence off social media is the wrong way to go about it. And it's also detrimental in some regards. You know, if I go on Triple J Unearthed and I listen to bands that have uploaded a song on Triple J Unearthed or even to their, you know, uh, SoundCloud or band page that they've recorded in the jam room off a Zoom microphone and it sounds like crap, you know, and that's only making your band look bad. It's not, you know, sure the ease of getting a recording up there is easier than ever before. But then pushing that out to all your friends who will listen to it once, but then they'll think it's a pile of crap. So it's it's about being smart about it. It's it's using it. It's not, you know, posting that you're playing down at the Prince of Wales five times in one day either. You know, it's it's about being smart and understanding, you know, how Facebook edge rank works and little things like that. And it's, you know, I think anyone in a band can easily educate themselves to all of these things. And even if you're in a business, you know, it's, I'm constantly trying to educate myself through listening to podcasts. And, and it was the same with Gyroscope. It was talking to people, you know, from a very young age, being exposed to, say, for instance, Jebediah's manager, Heath, and just being a little, you know, respectful, but a little little grom in his ear, just asking him questions about, you know, oh, wow, you know, how did, Je how did Jebediah get signed to Murmur Records? And just being inquisitive, I guess, and, uh, and trying to learn will always hold your band in good stead, I think. Were you the manager or Gyroscope was self-managed? No, no. We had a manager that was a friend of the band from mm -hmm. a, like very early on in the piece, probably from like 99, 2000. Um, and he sort of grew with the band for quite a while there and did a lot of good things with the band. 
But at a certain point in 2007, we just felt it wasn't really working anymore and we parted ways with him and did a tour around Australia, met a lot of managers and settled on Ray Harvey, who is based out of Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And we really liked Ray. We'd met her a few times. She had managed The Living End from day one and that was a band that we'd always looked up to the way they had run their careers and um, she still manages us now and still does Living End and Children Collide, 360, Pez. Um, so she's had she's had a great career and we've obviously learnt a lot of her as well, just about, you know, ethics and the way you run your band as a business and, yeah, and try and be successful. You know, she's, she's done great. Cool. What, what is your advice with um, hunting for a manager or something like that and how important is it uh, or what are the pros do you think over DIY management? You know, I, I, I think there's there's actually really only, there's not many great managers in Australia. And then there's, and I think bands are too quick to want to get management, which I can understand because usually there'll be one person in the band that might take that role or sometimes two. And it's very hard to detach yourself from then being, you know, songwriting in the band and marketing and doing all the other stuff. So what happens is, there can be a lot of tension within the band when a band is self-managed. But the longer you can do it, the better it is for the band, you know, and that's that's actually the great irony. I would highly recommend self-managing your band. And I would say to all bands that that's what they should be trying to get to a point where they can do because not only are they saving money on manager's fees, but they're learning along the way the requirements of the business side of the music industry. Of course, it's great if you can tap into a manager, a world-class manager like Ray Harvey, who has the contacts within the Australian music scene to say, okay, we're going to get you on the big day out. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. That's fantastic. But their resources are so spent because they're already so busy with their current bands that you have to be in a truly exceptional band to get on their radar. So I guess the thing I'd say, you know, you know, with Gyroscope, if we had approached Ray in 99 when we first got our manager, she wouldn't have been interested. Living End were blowing up around the world. A few years later, we'd really proved ourselves through touring and hard work and what we were about and a couple of albums. And then we were an attractive band for her. So if you can self-manage and you can learn as much as you can along the way, and then at some point channel up to a great manager, and I think that's the way to do it because it's very rare that you'll pick up a manager who's managing a band for the very first time and they'll grow with the band and become an epic manager in their right, own right. It's, it's a very rare quality. It can happen, and that's how it happened for Ray, and it's how it's happened for a lot of great managers. Greg Donovan, who looks after Airborne and Grinspoon. And, but really, if you can... Look after your own affairs. You'll learn a lot. You'll save money. The trick will be just making it, finding the balance with your bandmates and minimizing the tension yeah. amongst the bandmates. What, what about a... I uh, <laughs> no, totally agree. Um, I want you to be my manager, pretty much. Well, Cabba. What about a, a henhouse management or henhouse records one day? Is that a possibility? Yeah, definitely. It's um, Yeah, there's a lot I'd like to do in and around the henhouse brand, you know, uh, Rehearsal studios is obviously the mainstay, but I've always said I'd love to, I would love to do management because the music business fascinates me and I've loved it. And it's always been the thing that in within Gyroscope, I've always really been more interested in the, than the other fellas in. But at the same time, I've always said that I won't manage a band that I don't absolutely just fucking love, like brutally love them. You know, I have to be just so passionate about the music sure. and it'll happen. You know, I've got no doubt it'll happen. So when it does, I, I will probably just jump on that. And, um, and yeah, like even like a record club, something like that would be great. I, w I just, I need to be spending a bit more time and stuff like that. But definitely there's a lot more to come from the whole hen house thing and management's definitely a side I would like to get involved with. Awesome. There's a pun there. Are you involved? Ah, uh, you're quick buddy. Uh, all over it. I'm just a blonde drummer, pal. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, we did talk about the internet and the state of the music industry where, um, you know, you might not be making a dime out of CD sales and all this kind of business, um, especially when you're in debt um, on advances to a record label. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, digital media and, you know, things like Bandcamp, iTunes, Spotify, all these kind of things these days? Yeah. It's a really exciting time right now. I mean, Spotify, I, I love Spotify. That's how I consume all my music. I've got the $10 subscription. I listen every, you know, every day pretty much. Don't listen to radio anymore. Um, listen to their playlist, create playlists. You can save them offline on your phone. Um, but yeah, like Spotify, Bandcamp, all of that stuff's great, especially because you can monetize it yourself by selling stuff. You know, I've got a few, there is a few bands I know of that are selling, you know, they've sold five or 6,000 singles, you know, $1.50, $2 a pop through sound uh was it soundcloud i think and actually making money you know yeah. which is great and it's phenomenal and it can be done you know if you're getting played on triple j 
um, and maybe you're not even getting played on Triple J, but you've got a niche audience out there that is able to find you through podcasts, blogs, then you can sell stuff. And the whole model, the old school model is is out. I mean, you can record cheaply now. You can get it up there by yourself. Um, and the, the reality is if you are signing a record deal these days, it's horrible. You've got to give away your merchandise, a percentage of that, even worse, a percentage of your live shows. So it's just not an appealing proposition to be on a label these days. It's really not. Mm. How the times are changing, eh? Yeah. Crazy stuff. That was my dream. <laughs> Day one was to get a record deal, and now it's not so much. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, is it? It's no. just... No, you moved to start making podcasts with your band and talk about how hard life is. <laughs> nah. Large records. It's all, all going good. Um, well, I mean, with this particular podcast, this will be out uh, this Sunday, actually, hopefully, if all right. goes to plan. How should we market it? Well, I think what will be handy is the Hen House Rehearsal Studios has four and a half thousand followers. So <laughs> I'll put it out on there because it'll be nice for people to, you know, that follow the Hen House to hear an interview, which will be great for you guys because they'll see the podcast. And essentially, those four and a half thousand followers of the Hen House are generally musicians and it's your target market. So aligning yourself with the Hen House is, is great. It's great for me as well because a lot of your listeners are musicians and many of them might not have heard of the Hen House or they may have heard the Hen House but not tried it. So uh, if you're one of those people, uh, come on down. Uh, give the Hen House a call on 0407. Um, Ever tried Hen House? Yeah. So, no, I mean, that's a good start. Um, yeah. Sweet. And, yeah, yeah, hopefully there are a whole lot of new listeners tonight and, um, yeah, if you're listening, you know, no reason you can't chuck something together yourself as well. Start up a, a little little blog and just chuck out some ideas or some tips that you've learned along the way or, you know, areas where you've, um, you know, made errors in the past and you think other bands could, could benefit from it and succeed by, um, by bypassing those. That would be awesome as well. So, um, yeah, cheers for tuning in everyone. And we are, um, getting, getting close to the, uh, the brown end of the podcast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, you're a guy that, that seems to be doing a lot. I mean, perceptions from our end anyway, um, you know, you're achieving a lot and, and appear, um, reasonably successful and really good looking. Um, do you have any sort of habits in your own life that um, that keep you motivated and proactive and, you know, goal setting or any, any yeah. things like that, that that keep you trudging along? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's it's a, it's a hard question, isn't it? Jeez, Kevin, boy, you're asking the tough stuff now. We can edit it buddy, out hey? if you want. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, yeah, I feel like, um, I guess this is just personally, but trying to work towards something every day. Like I know that sounds, it sounds a little bit, uh, I don't know, naff maybe. But really, it can be anything. It can be going for a run. So like last year, I ran the New York Marathon. I'd always, want, I'd always wanted to run a marathon, but there'd be no shortages of excuses that got in the way. But just trying to set goals and then chipping away at them every day. So for instance, um, you know, buying R&R rehearsal studios was something that I started thinking about probably in 2005. And it took five years before I bought it in 2010. But by the time I started earning a salary, a very basic salary, but I, because I'd lived off only 250 bucks a week for so long, I just kept living off that from sort of 2007 through to 2010 and all the excess money I was able to save and that's what allowed me to buy the studio. So I guess just, you know, that was an example of like every day trying to save a little bit of money that would allow me to take the next step. And even now, I guess it's trying to learn every day. Um, yeah, just always a little bit of self-improvement instead of like going all like super large and buying like four books on a certain topic and trying to read them all at once. It's, yeah. I just try and just build up slowly and yeah, see where it, where it takes you. Good stuff, no. Good advice to me. Yep, me too. Um, and what do you have planned for the future of either the Hen House or with Gyroscope or music in general? Yeah, so really looking at a third studio at the moment, um, just trying to work on right. location. Um, so not, not here in Osborne Park? No, it won't be in Aussie Park. Um, so just trying to work out that exact location right now. So yeah, I hope to have that out next year. Um, Hopefully we'll beat you to it. Yeah. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a process, <laughs> the, the whole space thing. So, um, yeah, that, um, Gyroscope's been playing a few shows again, which is great. Um, Tomorrow night, Indie Bar. Yep. Indie Bar. Um, played at the Prince of Wales last night. It was an absolutely awesome show. Had a ball. We rocked up and you were asleep, I believe. I was. Today. I was asleep because Mitch, the publican at the Prince of Wales, was an absolute superstar and let us go behind the bar and more shots and beers and whatever the hell See, we That's wanted. what you want from a venue. Mitch. That is what you want from a venue, hey? 
pulled out the Jaeger. No worries, <laughs> boys. Go nuts. And uh, and so I was uh, I was a little. Uh, t- I wanted to be fresh when you boys arrived. <laughs> I did take an. I took a nap on uh, the couch in um, the banding room too. And then they walked in on me fast asleep in the room, <laughs> which was a bit awkward since we've only just really met each other. They only moved in a few weeks ago. Well, but, uh, yeah, maybe they were thinking you were, um, you know, just waiting for them, being nice. Yeah, yeah. Good welcome. Host. Welcome. <laughs> no, so, yeah, it's uh, should should be a busy year, I'd say. Nice. Awesome, man. And, uh, man, what's the best way, I guess, for, for anyone listening out there to um, to get in touch with you or to find out what you're up to in regards to either gyroscope or hen houses? Yeah. Uh, best to go on the net or yeah, yeah. what's the go? Oh, I'm, I'm freely throwing my email address out there for bands that want to ask personal questions or get me to listen to something. It's just robnassif at gmail.com, just my name. Um, and then, obviously, the hen house Facebook page is a good one, um, the gyroscope Facebook page. But yeah, if you want to get real personal and get get right in there, robnassif uh, at gmail.com. Maybe I'll flick you an email asking why there isn't a mini ramp in the uh, in the studio one oh, over there. You want yeah, to get that'd be, nice, huh? <laughs> that'd that'd be, be great. Yeah. I'm going to ask you probably, uh, I'll email you and ask why there's no bins in the rooms. Yeah, again, I'm at, you know, we pay people to come in to clean the rooms, which is why they always look so great and clean. Um and I like the rooms to be kind of minimalistic, and mm-hmm. I think a bin would just throw it off. You know, <laughs> really, yeah. I'm we're funny answer. about stuff. We've like always that. wondered. Yeah, we've because we feel bad. Yeah. We're like, shit. Where do we put our? No, no, box? it's okay. You can just you can just leave it on the ground. It's okay. Fire we'll, out. We'll take care of that for you. This is a hotel. We just want you guys to be relaxed, <laughs> drink your brewskis, have fun, and just make good music. You know, awesome music, which you guys do, and that's why it's so exciting when I you tell me that you know it's a you know that. When, a whole bunch of the drums are recorded here and then I listen to it and it's kind of makes me feel really proud, you know, because I'm a little part of something awesome that's been created by you guys. So congrats on the podcast as well, guys. It's, oh, it's awesome. Shucks, lodge. It's too nice. <laughs> and you know, I'm forever going to be looking at white ceilings and knowing why they're white and not yeah. black. <laughs> exactly. I want you guys feeling good, not down. Next time we jam somewhere else, which hopefully will never happen. We'll, yeah, we'll notice the difference, so don't you worry. No, it's great having you guys here. A lot of young bands look up to you guys, especially with what you're doing with the Blodge and even what you've done as far as touring and got your big festival in Indonesia coming up. So Yeah, sure do. It's going to be good. Uh, next April 27th, next weekend. Brilliant. Jakarta Hammersonic. Jump yep. on a flight. Cool. No, thanks, Heaps, man. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree any more with every single bit of uh, advice that's come out um, this afternoon. So thanks, Heaps, and I'm... Um, have no doubt that any everyone listening has learnt shitloads as well, and I'd like to think they're going to be rewinding it a few times to um to get all that super info that you've given as well. Um, so yeah, big props, Mad Dog, you've done heaps of good things, and if you're in Perth, make sure you get down to the Hen House to rehearse. If you don't, you're not very smart. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for being with us, Ash. And check out thehenhouse.com.au. Large and check out uh, the show notes on claimthethrone.net, and you can find everything you want to know about Rob Nassif and the Hen House and Gyroscope. And all sorts of things about Claim the Throne as well. And we'll be back in about 10 seconds with an outro to this podcast. Thanks, guys. Nice work, Rob. Thanks very much for the interview. And I hope you guys learned a hell of a lot from that. Uh, Me and Cabo were pretty happy to chat to Rob. Uh, We've been talking about doing this for quite a while. It's nice to actually get that one done. Quite a lot of useful information there for bands and for business-minded people alike. As mentioned earlier in the interview, we are off to Indonesia for Hamasonic Metal Festival. Uh, So maybe we might not have a podcast for ready for you next week, but we will endure to get you one the week after. And perhaps it will be a Hammersonic wrap up, but we will never know until it happens. So, in the meantime, check out some Claim the Throne and get across to Hammersonic with Cone Smash 9000 if you can do so. See you later.